This is episode 87 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, The History and Future of Employer-Provided Health Insurance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm very excited to have a new guest on the show today. I ran into uh, Rick Lindquist as I was sleuthing around for an expert about employer-provided healthcare insurance. And I'll introduce him. He's uh, originally from North Carolina, went to Duke University, where he got degrees in economics and computer science. And instead of going straight to work, he went to Utah to ski and took some time off. Uh, He met an entrepreneur there who just started a software company in the health benefits space, and Rick became very interested in learning about U.S. health insurance system. He ended up joining that company, eventually became its CEO, and worked there for 10 years. And in 2018, he moved on to begin his own startup endeavors, consulting for entrepreneurs and doing some writing and consulting. He also has a podcast called Startup to Last. Uh, so welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Great. Well, this my interest in this whole thing started when I was talking to somebody who said, you know, it's really weird that in the U.S. we have employer-provided health insurance because if you get sick and you can't work you lose your job, and then you have no insurance. It's like, oh, this is completely backwards. And it's strange to me that I'd never really thought about this before. I've lived in Europe in several countries on several different occasions for several different years, and so was familiar with their systems. And it just never occurred to me how troublesome it is for the to get your health insurance from your employer. And I'll talk about this a little later in the show, but also then being a CFO for companies that were providing health insurance to our employees and all the problems that that created. So uh, start us off by telling us how we got here. Yeah. So um, it's, it's interesting and I, I can go on for days about this stuff. So if I, you know, <laughs> feel free to interrupt me if I'm, if I'm going too far uh, down the, down any rabbit holes, but yeah, I, th- I think um, one thing that I always like to start with here is that, consumer, like health insurance is a consumer product. It's not a business to business product. Um, It is at the end of the day, a consumer contracting with a health insurance company around personal insurance. So when you think about it being bought for and paid for and tied to your employment, it really makes no sense. It'd be like, you can only drive your car while you're working at this company. Mm. And so the whole concept doesn't make any sense. But when you look back at history, it does make a lot of sense. So kind of maybe before I go right into history, a lot of people don't really fully appreciate how much of a hodgepodge health insurance is today. Mm. And so your friend was talking about how 
there are many different countries out there developed who have universal health coverage as the primary source of coverage. And what that means is that the government has created an, an environment or a, a regulated uh, system that guarantees that every citizen will have access to some amount of basic health care. And they finance that either through small premium payments by the citizens or, or taxes um, from citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that, but, but what's different is that's the primary source of health care coverage for citizens in other countries. And, and what's different about the U.S. is coverage through your employer is the primary source of coverage. Right. But what people don't realize, though, is we actually do have a lot of universal coverage. We do have, you know, so if you look at the market, we kind of have four buckets of where people get coverage or don't get coverage. Mm-hmm. One is employer, and that is just under 50%. And that's been slowly declining over the last, let's call it 15 to 20 years since the two, since 2000. Mm-hmm. The next biggest bucket is the universal coverage piece, which is Medicare, which is simply put coverage for the poor, uh, uh, Medicare, which is simply put coverage for the old, and then military coverage like TRICARE that is coverage for the vet, for, for military veterans. So there's employer-provided Medicaid, which is for the poor, Medicare for the elderly. And then what's the military one called? It's, it's called TRICARE. Okay. And it's, it's for, you know, thank you for your service. We'll take care of your, your healthcare when you get back from war, assuming you get back. And, and so that, that I bucket all three of those together as the government regulated universal healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's 35% of where 35% of Americans get coverage through that bucket. And that bucket has increased almost 50% over the last uh, 20 years. So we actually are seeing a decline in the employer market, which has been our primary source of coverage and still is, and a massive increase in universal coverage. It's subtle, but it's happening. I see. There's another bucket. There's two more buckets, though. The One bucket is, and we'll talk about this more, I'm sure, because employer costs have been rising so much, and that cost has been shifted a lot over the last 20, 30 years to employees. A lot of companies have started dropping coverage, and so that's created a market, which is what referred to in the industry as the individual health insurance market Mm -hmm. or the non-group market. Mm -hmm. And this is where individuals more and more are going directly to insurance companies and buying direct. Mm -hmm. And that's just over 5% of the market. The rest of the people, at least about 10%, are uninsured. Okay. What people don't realize is that's actually dropped a lot. So, I, you know, if you look at the trends, employer health coverage is going down, mm-hmm. individual coverage is going up, uninsured is going down, and government universal health care is massively increasing. I see. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I like to start sort of like where, you know, where we are today, that's where we are and what the trends are. But it, I think it's, pre- it's pretty interesting to go into why, how we got to employer coverage in the first place, because it's so backwards. Yeah. So yeah, let's talk about that. We can go back uh, to the changes that we're seeing, but I would like to understand the history first. Yeah. So um, it's actually a pretty recent history. Health insurance is 
you know, about a century old in terms of how we think about it today. So prior to World War One, which is around I guess, 1914 to 1918, I think is the time frame. Prior to that, um, America, Americans, we paid directly for our own health care. For example, most babies we were born at home and we we just dealt with it. Um, doctors would call, right? Mm-hmm. So in the period between World War One and World War Two, which was from roughly 1919 to 1938, the uh, medical industry, the healthcare industry started developing new life-saving procedures, procedures that extended life or really changed life. Mm. Um, and, and birth started moving from home to the hospital. So this, this started to create a, a demand for cat one on one side, catastrophic care, life-saving saving care when something bad went wrong and maternity care, you know, in terms of getting help, having a baby. And the problem arose, you know, from a patient's perspective of how do we finance that care? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when Blue Cross Blue Shield start. Well, we call it Blue Cross Blue Shield today, but it used to be two separate entities. So mm-hmm. there was Blue Cross, which was, let's just call them hospital insurance entities that they started offering guaranteed hospital services for a fixed fee. Okay. And then on the other end, you had Blue Shield, which was a different entity that began offering what we call, what, what really is insurance, but reimbursement for really expensive physician services. Okay. So when you think about it, before World War II, health insurance really was insurance. The best analogy I can think of is, think about it like auto insurance. You don't use your auto insurance to go get oil checks. Right. And basic maintenance. Mm-hmm. And that's how health insurance worked prior to World War II you bought this catastrophic coverage and you really only used it if some, if a catastrophe happened and it didn't cover all the, the little things you, you, you paid for that yourself, but those that changed uh, during world war two. So in world war two, what happened was, uh, so Germany in post-world war one experienced significant uh, post wartime inflation, which caused them all sorts of economic problems. And so the U.S. having studied that from watching Germany deal with it post-World War I, as it approached World War II and post-World War II, the officials of the U.S. government instituted massive wage and price controls to curb or avoid post-wartime inflation. And what that meant was they they, they basically um, said, you as an employee, once you start making above a certain threshold, and I can't remember what the exact numbers are, but we're going to tax the heck out of you. Oh, so I think at some point it was, you know, once you made a certain amount of money, 90%, it was something like a 90% tax rate. So that kept wages from, from massively increasing and kept the economy stable through this period of war. Um, now what ended up happening was labor groups and laborers started getting a little frustrated because they were watching a lot of business owners and investors profit greatly from the war, mm-hmm. but, but they weren't receiving that share of the pie in the form of compensation because of the, the controls. Their wages weren't going up. Their wages were not going up. Um, and even if they did, they didn't take much of that if, you know, home with them. Mm. So uh, it, uh, that, that caused some significant negotiations around and threatens of striking and all kinds of things around how to increase worker comp- workers' comp- actual compensation. Yeah, the and labor unions were getting pretty strong. 
Yes, during this exactly. period of time, right? Yes. We just did an episode about labor unions. How appropriate! <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, it's um, you know, it's I, I wish I knew more about the specifics of like the the details of how the labor unions operate. But my my expertise is more in like what they were operating, and one issue for them was compensation. Right. And the way that they negotiated this was they basically created an exemption for certain employer paid benefits oh. from income. So all of a sudden you created this tax, I'm, I'm going to call it a loophole, but sometimes there's a negative connotation with loopholes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really a tax incentive, but this was more of a tax, creating a tax loophole. It wasn't an, this gave employers the ability without increasing wages to provide certain types of benefits like paid healthcare to employees on a pre-tax basis. Right. So any money that an employer offered towards health insurance or health care was 100% tax-free to the worker and 100% tax-deductible to the business. So to put this in context, if you're a, a worker at a company in the ni- late 1940s, you, um, if you earn a dollar more in wages, you get 10 cents. But if you get a dollar more in healthcare benefits and you use that, mm-hmm. you get a full dollar. What would you rather have? Yeah, right. Yeah, sure. So a, a massive incentive for the employer to be involved in healthcare was created and led to a massive growth in employers beginning to offer coverage. As taxes came down and those price, wage and price controls were removed, that exemption remained. Right. Gosh, it's hard. It's just hard to imagine something that's so profoundly part of our system now is I wouldn't say it was started on a whim, but the factors that led to it seem kind of temporary. And yet now here they are so ensconced in our system. It's amazing. Yeah, it's it really is. I, I like looking at history for two reasons. One, it you you typically make assumptions about why certain things happen. Mm-hmm. And then when you actually look into them, it doesn't make it, you, your assumptions are all wrong. Yeah, um, right. Right. And, <laughs> I think, and like, yeah, it's, that's the feeling that I have right now. Is yeah. Wow. <laughs> yep. And, and and but what it does do is it helps you understand. Like I like history because once you understand the the real whys, you have a much better ability to predict the future of how it's going to be in the going forward. Which and to cre- imagine alternatives. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I think like the more people who know the history of this, the more people are going to go, this makes no sense. I feel more comfortable changing it. Mm-hmm, but right now, right. I think most people think that this exists because it's good and it mm-hmm. makes sense. And um, when you start to peel back the the layers, um, the more people who get this history, I think, the, the more likely they're going to be in favor of change. Mm-hmm. Okay. So keep going here. That This system kind of worked until the 80s and 90s. And then tell tell us what happened. Well, here's like, I, I can I put this in perspective? So from night, so this went about in the forties and then from the 1950s to the 2000 employer provided health insurance dominated and grew. Now, along the way we did introduce Medicare, Medicaid, the children's health insurance pool to fill the gaps. Um, like w- what happens when someone quits working? Where do they get the coverage? Mm-hmm. What happens when someone isn't working because they're, they're too poor or disabled? And, and can't like, they, they just are in poverty. How do we take care of those people? What about kids who are born into poverty? The, so we, we, we did, we introduced universal healthcare 
to fill the gaps of employer-provided coverage, but employer-provided coverage was the primary source of coverage for the majority of Americans. So what ended up happening was, I mean, the best example I can give of this, and one of the reasons I was, I'm so passionate about this is, imagine walking into a restaurant and you are looking at the menu and the menu is fixed and you cannot see any prices. And guess what? You don't get to pick what's on the menu, what you order. The employer, your employer is picking all those things for you. Yeah. You don't know how much it costs. You have a, you have a couple of choices and you pick it. That's how employer healthcare system works. You don't, there, we went from employees and individuals knowing the, the cost of care to being completely removed from it. Employer paid healthcare led to complete blindness of the consumer for, in terms of cost of care. Mm-hmm. So what, what, what started to happen was costs started going up from 1950 to 2000. I, I, don't, I don't, you know, we always talk about how much healthcare spending is in the U S we do. And we mm-hmm. talk about trillions, but it doesn't really put it into perspective because there's such big numbers. Yeah. The best way to look at it is on a per capita basis, which means per person. Mm-hmm. So per person in the U S in 1950, we were spending a few hundred dollars per person per year. In 2000, it rose to $5,000. So that's a significant increase in how much spending was happening per person. It was primarily driven by this employer exemption. Yeah, it's so, the system is so intertwined and and so gnarly, right? I mean, I get my medical bills and, and the numbers just seem fictitious because they don't, and what you initially get charged, that's not what they get paid. And I pay something completely different. It's like, what a mess. <laughs> yeah, if, if, any, if, you, if, you, if any of the listeners have ever called a doctor's office and asked for the price, they, they say, uh, we, don't, we don't know. It depends on your insurance. But what they're really saying is we have about 50 different prices depending on what insurance you have and who you are. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, that's what's, that is the result of the employer-based system. And, and so, uh, you know, that's my, I should be very clear. That that's my opinion. I think the, the, not having the consumer take direct ownership of their healthcare and their ownership and the cost of those things with transparency prevents any sort of consumerism from happening. Mm-hmm. Any, any initiative on the part of the ultimate consumers where, where we could have a lot of influence if we were able to do that, I think, in terms of the quality of our care and the options that we have. No, I can easily imagine that. So, you know, we, we started to wake up to this in the, two, in the 2000s. And this was kind of an interesting time because, one, the healthcare costs were getting out of control. They were at $5,000 per person. Mm-hmm. So we started going, oh, this is crazy. Employers <laughs> started looking at, you know, at their bills and they, were, they realized that their number one cost of doing business was payroll. Their second cost was benefits, health insurance. And so employers started realizing this thing's getting out of control. What am I going to do? And this is where a movement towards what is called consumer-directed care or consumer-directed um, healthcare is, uh, came about. And this is where you got high-deductible health plans mm-hmm. coming about and the, and the creation of health savings accounts, which happened in the early 2000s. Right. And this was the idea here was, let's put more of the responsibility of financing the healthcare, uh, the, the, the routine maintenance expenses, the, the, the deductible expenses on the consumer and they'll get more educated as a result and that will drive down costs. 
And just now people are starting to, if you talk to people, they understand what an HSA is. Mm-hmm. Many people don't have an HSA and don't know what an HSA is in detail. It just shows you how like that was introduced in the early 2000s. I think it was 2002. That shows you it's been 18 years, how long it takes for some of these things to take effect. So what I like to take a step back and in this situation is realizing by the time in 2000, where we started realizing that there was a problem, we, it was too late to have impact in the short term. So we're just, in my opinion, we're just now starting to see the results mm-hmm. of some of this consumer-directed care coming about in the tw- in, in 2020. Yeah, that was kind of my era of being a CFO and coping with these massive annual increases that we were getting that were just impossible to control, very hard to understand. I remember one year the insurance company justified some double-digit annual increase by explaining to us that we now had more employees who were living in a different zip code than they were the year before, that we'd had this kind of trend shift to a new zip code. And so it drove all these new calculations that resulted in this massive increase. And you just felt so victimized, right? Just so out of control. And the numbers were huge. And of course, the the effect to us as a small company was there were all kinds of other things that we couldn't do. We were a biotech company. We couldn't invest in research because we're spending all this money (laughs) on health insurance. And and it, it wasn't necessarily the case in my company, but I also thought, you know, I wonder if what happens when you're in such a small shop that you can tell the impact of one person's care. Like if somebody gets cancer, you know, what, what does that do to the company's premiums? And then does that make the other employees or the leadership resentful of that person? You know, what a mess. Total mess. And it's, you know, there's been all kinds of attempts over the last 20 years to salvage employer-based health insurance through different rules and rating pools and all kinds of things. It, it, in my opinion, it just needs to go away. I see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now I, I, if I say that out loud to, in the wrong room, I'll get stuff thrown at me because there's so much money and so many hands in the, what I call the group health insurance or employer-based health insurance cookie jar. I see. Mm-hmm. So unwinding this is really, really hard. So we did start to see individual health insurance options, and that's what I do now that I'm self-employed. So tell us how that came about and what that looks like. Yeah. So a couple of things I think happened. One is that employers started getting much more sensitive in the early 2000s to healthcare cost increases. And the way that they handled that was they started shifting costs to employees. Mm -hmm. So that comes in the form of a couple of things. First, let's raise the deductible and keep the premium the same. So let's start, you know, increasing the co-pays and doing basic health insurance plan design maneuvers. And then eventually that turns into let's increase the employee's share of the premium. And eventually it's, we're only covering employees And now we're only covering 50% of employee premiums. Yeah. And so it went from pretty much 100% paid coverage to what we have now, which is if you walk into small businesses, you're lucky if half of the premiums covered for just the employee on the plan. Yeah. And that leads to two things. First, it leads to some companies going, this is stupid. I'm going to, I can't afford even the 50%. I'm going to drop coverage. Mm Mm-hmm. 
or change the rules about who's allowed to get coverage. I saw a lot kind of monkeying around. Yeah, monkeying around is a good word. But eventually, like you do all the monkeying around, and the costs go up again. You you have one choice, and that is we're going to get out of the group health insurance business. We're going to drop coverage. And then the other one that is the what people a lot of people don't realize about group coverage or employer based coverage is that there's a and you probably know this as a CFO is there's a uh, typically a minimum participation requirement. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're you know a forty person company or a hundred person company, usually the carrier will say, "Yeah, I'm I'm going to offer you this rate, but it's contingent on at least X percent, usually fifty or seventy five percent of your employees taking the coverage." And you know when we when it was a hundred percent paid coverage by the employer, you had a you know a pretty high participation rate. Yeah, everybody right? participates pretty much. Uh, sometimes their spouses would cover it, but but yeah. Yeah, but then when you start shifting costs to employees and they have to make a financial decision on whether they want this plan, guess what employees start doing? Mm. Uh, no, thanks. Oh. And, and then so what, what ended up happening was the individual market started realizing, oh man, there's people who aren't either getting coverage through work now and there's people who get coverage, but don't, you know, I can offer them a better deal on the individual market than they can get on their employer basis. Right. And the individual market started growing and insurance companies started entering and offering new plans to serve that new market. So that's how the individual health insurance market started growing. So tell me about your company, because you were kind of starting to step into this space then, right? Yeah. So at the time I, um, so this, I moved, I graduated in 2007. So at this time, HSAs were out. I remember taking a health economics class at Duke Mm -hmm. and I had a great professor um, and he 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 used to make me us write about all these you know the different make arguments for different healthcare pieces. We barely spent any time on consumer directed care. This was in 2007, so we were still talking about HMOs, PPOs, and traditional managed care, not consumer directed care. We spent very little time on it. it. Just shows you that even though I came out in 2007, yeah. these these this consumer directed care thing was supremely innovative and new. So what what we what, what where I got excited was when I moved out to Park City. I met the founder of Zane Benefits, and he he taught me all this. So he gets full credit for explaining this history to me. Um, but I what, what he what he had his idea was there's a better way. Eventually, there's seems, com- like, seems like there better be a better way. Yeah, right? it, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and he and his main thing was he. I mean, he's he's a little less. Um, let's just call it politically correct than me. He, he, I remember when I first interviewed with him, he said, um, Rick, group health insurance is pernicious. It is evil. Mm. It, it screws people and it lets people down when they need it most. It's evil. And I, and I had just gotten off the call with my dad before the interview. And I said, Hey dad, I'm going in for an interview. What's some, what are some good questions to ask? And guess what my dad told me? Don't know. He said, make sure that they offer good health insurance. Oh, wow. <laughs> of course. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, good, good advice, dad. <laughs> yeah. And um, I did not ask that question. I realized pretty quickly that there was not going to be health insurance offered <laughs> at same benefits. <laughs> yes. That would, that would have uh, perhaps not been the wisest question to ask after that. <laughs> no, but what we, what we did instead was we said, you know what, what if, we could build some technology that took advantage of the same tax code that allows employer paid group coverage mm-hmm. to, to exist 
And we said, let's turn it around. And, and instead of taking money out of people's paychecks, let's offer them a reimbursement account for their premiums. So let's, you know, let's go into a, a business and instead of them offering group coverage and a price to be deducted from their paycheck, let's offer them an amount and let them go buy their own health insurance on the individual market. And that was AIM Benefits. And so we were very innovative at the time. But companies still signed up with you. Oh, yeah. We, um, yeah, we, I sold probably the first, I think Paul probably signed up the first 25 to 30 companies. And then I, I was sold the next 500. Oh, and, I see. Okay. Yeah. And, and wow. uh, so we, it was really early on. I was the 13th employee and I ultimately became, I came on as an entry level sales rep, but I ultimately became the CEO in the next couple of years. And um, most of it was because I shared Paul's passion for the problem. But I totally believed in the solution. And the solution was better than high deductible health plans and HSAs because it got the employer out of the middle. It said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take advantage of the tax code, which allows me to give you tax-free money for health insurance, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to pick your plan for you and I'm not going to pay for your plan. Here's money. You go decide what you want to do with it. So did you, so was, was uh, Zane Benefits, did Zane Benefits sit between the employer and the medical insurance? This is the best part. So with individual health okay. insurance, you literally are the consumer. You act like you would if you go buy a car. Right. You, go, you go visit all the car lots. You drive the cars. You talk to the different car salesmen. And you, you pick the car that best fits your needs. And then you keep that car when you switch jobs. What we did was we said, we are going to build a software platform for the company, sort of like QuickBooks Online for accounting, mm-hmm. but, but this was for managing a reimbursement program for health insurance. And it was incredibly like, sophisticated, simple from an from a employer or an employee stand, standpoint. It acted like a, basically a business expense reimbursement account. But what we were doing behind the scenes was making sure we complied with the tax code rules, making sure we complied with HIPAA, making sure we complied with ERISA, all these, you know, massive, these acronyms around that basically mean don't screw up or your, or your, your employer will get fined for breaking rules. Exactly. It's another terrible thing about it. So we, so what we did was we automated the exchange of money uh, from employer to employee for the reimbursement of healthcare expenses, but spe- specifically individual health insurance premiums. So the employee now was on their own mm. to go buy health insurance or they already had health insurance and now it was getting reimbursed. But they, there was no restrictions on where they went. They could go buy any plan they wanted to. They could choose not to buy a plan and use the money for medical expenses. And the money came from the employer, but right? Yes. Um, right. But that was it was still an advantage to the employer to be able to step out of all of the administration and regulation and uh, making sure that they were compliant with tax codes, all that kind of thing. Is that correct? Yeah, totally. Two things were big for employers. One was that they could they could save money on, they could fix their costs. So, so that like you, you, the big pain point at this time was renewals. I'm going to get a 20, you have to budget a 20% increase in your costs every year with no change to your top line. It was terrible. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Terrible. It was terrible. So fixing costs through this mechanism was huge. And then, yeah, if you want to give someone a raise and they are deserving, maybe you also increase their HRA, you know, their reimbursement money too. So treating it like compensation was a big change. The second was, I don't have to be in the middle anymore. So no, not only am I not getting a rate increase, 
but I'm not having to go buy health insurance plans for all my employees anymore. Mm -hmm. So there's a massive sort of emotional, psychological relief when you're not in the middle of one of your, you know, employees and their kids cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. And it takes a minute to get there, but once you're there, you don't want to go back. Yeah. yeah. And, and no, so, I would have been interested in talking to you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, but we ran into challenges, to be honest. One of the challenges that we ran into was, um, you know, like the reason I got my opportunity was the original business plan went after very large corporations. Mm. The non-compete has, uh, the, I'm sorry, the non-disclosure has, uh, has lifted on this, but we were in the boardroom at Menards, which is a Home Depot competitor. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And we, we were close. We were at the very close to the finish line of converting them to this in 2008. Can you imagine if Menards announced that they were dropping group coverage in 2008 and giving people money to go buy their own health insurance? It would have made the news. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally, totally. And we made the news. We were front page of the Wall Street Journal, front page oh, of the wow. small business section of the New York Times. And we were all over the place. But ultimately, we ran into two issues. One was a comp- compliance issue. The existing market, which is typically made up of group health insurance brokers and, and insurance companies, mm-hmm. who I talked about the people with the hands in the group health insurance cookie jar, mm-hmm. they just sort of like uh, taxi cab drivers go after Uber. Mm-hmm. They went after us. Yeah. And so they were calling, they were talking to the employers and our potential clients, telling them what they're doing is illegal. And we weren't. And that's been clarified a number of times since then. But at the time, we were new, the new guys on the street, and we were constantly dealing with that. Mm-hmm. The second issue, and this was actually the bigger issue, um, was that at the time, this is uh, 2008, 2009, the individual health insurance market in most states, 46 states, was medically underwritten, meaning uh, when you buy health insurance uh, at, at a company, when you go work there, it's guaranteed issue. You don't have to worry about pre-existing conditions and whether or not you qualify for health insurance. Mm-hmm. On the individual market at the time, you were rated based on your health. So, uh, your history, your health history. Exactly, your health history. And mm-hmm. and so, for a healthy person, a young healthy person like me, I was paying fifty dollars for a two thousand dollar deductible plan in two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. Okay, which is great for me. Mm-hmm. But if you had, you know, cancer you'd be flat out denied coverage. Yeah. So, you know, if you're looking at this from a company that is Menards and you're going, I'm okay, I'm already offering a really bad group health insurance plan <laughs> no, that no one participates in. Oh dear. But the people who participate in are the people who need it. They're the people who can't get health insurance on the individual market. Right. So you have so this it's massive, flawed. yeah, yeah it's you have this massive it. adverse selection issue. Yeah, where, right. And adverse selection if, for people who don't know is, is, is when, sicker people are more likely to participate in health insurance than healthy people. Mm-hmm. And that's what the dynamic was between the individual market and the group market in 46 states. If you're healthy, it was, you're better off going and buying your own health insurance. If you are sick, you're better participating in the employer, in the employer plan. Mm-hmm. And so that's what caused employer, that was another factor in causing employer costs to skyrocket. Um, but uh, so yeah, our big issue was when we would go into Menards, like what we're going to go tell our sickest, most, you know, our people, the people who need this health insurance the most that we're taking it away. And then they're going to get denied coverage on the individual market. That was what ultimately led them to say, we're not ready for this. We're going to, we're going to stay in our existing system, no matter how flawed it is, because there could be repercussions for some sick people. They'll, um, they'll end up with no insurance at all. The PR associated with, with switching, uh, taking away health insurance from a thousand I mean, these are just guesses. Uh, you know, people who need the health insurance right now and 
is not worth it. Yeah. Not worth mm-hmm. any savings. So um, what we ended up doing is uh, this is where I got my start. There's a massive change. Like we did not succeed um, enough uh, in 2008 by the time the market crashed. So um, the company went from 30 employees. This is Zane Benefits, my like my old company, mm-hmm. uh, to five employees. And I was one of the five employees who got kept. And that's when I got my CEO opportunity. Uh-huh. Uh, and I pivoted the business with the help of, of, of a very small team at the time to focusing on very small employers or very small businesses. And what we found out was that in the sub 50 employee company space, mm-hmm. there are about 5.7 million businesses in the U.S. Wow. Three million of them do not offer health insurance. Right. Why don't they offer health insurance? It's not because they don't care about their employees. It's not because they don't want to. It's because they can't afford to offer it or they can't meet the minimum participation requirements or they don't have the time to administer it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so we found our, our niche in where we really grew the business focus going into companies that previously could not afford health insurance and giving them a way to offer employees a couple hundred bucks a month. Mm-hmm. And that way you're not disrupting coverage. You're just adding a new option. Yeah. It's giving them. So there they're providing something that they weren't providing before. Whereas in the Menards case, it feels like they're taking something away. Exactly. Now, if you looked detailed in the Menards situation, they were actually giving, let's just say participation hypothetically at, at a company with 10,000 employees is less than 50%. Okay. And that means that you have 5,000 people who aren't getting benefits. When you switched to our model, you went from 100% of people getting coverage, getting That's some true. amount of money. Right. So it was definitely much more fair to move to our model, mm-hmm. but it was way worse. It was definitely like, it, once you give us something, it's much harder to take it away than it is yeah. to give something new. Right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that, that ultimately is, is kind of the interesting dynamic, but yeah, so we focused on the small, very small businesses and we grew, we grew that massively. Um, in 2010, um, the, uh, that's when the affordable care act was passed by Obama. Mm-hmm. Um, and we thought that when that thing passed in March, we were pumped because guess what it did? When you really look into what the Affordable Care Act was, and some people call this Obamacare, what it really was, was individual health insurance market reform. Mm-hmm. Most people think it's all like, most people don't understand what it was, but basically the biggest thing Obamacare did was it, it set mandates for and standards for how the individual health insurance market needed to work so that it was on an equal playing field with an employer market. And before, as I mentioned, it was medically underwritten. Now, after Obamacare, and this was delayed, so Obamacare passed in March 2010. It didn't, all these big rules didn't take effect until January 2014. It was a delayed launch. Rollout. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what ended up happening on January 1st, 2014, this is the big stuff. This is the stuff that really, I think, moved the U.S. health insurance market forward. Not, not perfectly, but like to the next step. It made individual, all insurance companies in all states participating in the individual market offer plans on a guaranteed issue basis. It made subsidies available for people based on their income mm-hmm. so that, that you know, people could afford it. It required people to buy health insurance so that you know, more people would, more healthy people would enter the, the, the individual market and not be subject to that adverse selection. Mm-hmm. And it, it required employers you know, when they decided to shift, shift employees to the individual market to pay a penalty, to pay a fine to help fund it. And those are the big changes. If you think about it, it's the employer 
they call it the employer mandate, but really it's a employer contribution to the subsidies. Okay. Um, they, it's, there's the individual mandate there and that, you know, requirement to buy health insurance, the guaranteed issue and the standardization of individual health insurance plans. And then, you know, the premium subsidies, most of Obamacare is about making the individual health insurance market better. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's how I'm in California, but that's how it came across to me that mm-hmm. there were more options for people, but most importantly, that the premiums were subsidized based on income. There was a lot of speculation amongst my network at the time that it would drive more entrepreneurship because people could leave their jobs and lose their health insurance, whereas Mm -hmm. previously that might have kept people in their jobs even unhappily because they just couldn't afford to lose their health insurance. I don't know if that played out in the numbers, but but on an individual basis, people seem to be saying that like, hey, you know, this this could be encouraging to people if they want to start their own business, then they still can have health insurance. Yeah. And, and, and the reality is that that has happened, mm. but it's too little too late. I mean, mm. we, what, what you have to realize is that all these individuals who had their employer paying the bill and just check the box on annual, you know, the annual open enrollment through their employer had no idea what the real cost of their health insurance was. They thought it was just the payroll deduction. Right. Oh, so, yeah. So when they see when when the average person sees the cost of an individual health insurance policy for the deductible for the higher deductible, they can't fathom it because they've never seen it before. But That's it's been true. that way all the time. Yeah. No, it was hidden. No, or the employer paid it. We just yep. paid it. Yeah. So, so there's this like, we're going through this situation right now where in 2014, the world was exposed to the actual cost of health insurance for the first time. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, people reacted all kinds of ways, <laughs> right? The politics around healthcare for the last six years have have been interesting to say the least. But- yeah, there's a lot of, I feel as though there's a lot in the media, how can I say this in a non-confrontational way? I feel as though there is a lot of propaganda. Maybe I should just say it that way. I feel as though there's a lot of propaganda about how things worked out. Do you agree or what do you think? Well, I mean, that's like, uh, that's like say yes, that's an absolute truth. Politics and the English language by George Orwell is one of the best essays ever written because it talks about this. P- politics is propaganda. You can't have political conformity without lying in some way and picking words that aren't the truth. Um, and so that happens on both sides of the aisle. There's so much propaganda and no one knows what actually is happening because no one's talking about it. Mm-hmm. And so when you actually look into the history, like we're talking about today, all the stuff that is happening makes total sense. Mm-hmm. It makes total sense. It doesn't provide an answer going forward, but like why we got here, it makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Like why why did the Affordable Care Act get passed? It makes total sense why it got passed, right? There are more people buying individual health insurance. Mm-hmm. Guess what happened? They were unhappy with being denied coverage. They were unhappy with medical underwritten plans. The sick people were getting screwed. What do you do? You, you make it guaranteed issue. You fill the gap. Right. And and so, and, and now the cost is, it's not perfect and it, and it probably never will be, but it's moved into a better place than it was in terms of the way I look at it is health insurance. People know the cost of health insurance now, right? Yes. They are aware of the outrageous uh, charges that are made. They, I think that's true. And the cost of the premiums, they know that now. I, so I look at it as, you know, forget the, the, the propaganda is going to drive a certain amount, but because of the changes that have happened, 
more and more people, and I think even over the next 10 years, like when we're talking about 2030, the, the amount of education, I talk to people today who buy their own health insurance and they are so like so much more knowledgeable about how the system works mm-hmm. than the, when I was talking to people in 2010 and even 2015. It's, it's amazing how much progress in terms of what I would call consumer literacy around healthcare and health insurance has increased. And we're just scratching the surface. So from like when I listen to the propaganda, it's like, yeah, that's going to happen with politics no matter what. But I can kind of sift through it and say, like, at the end of the day, both sides are saying the same thing. We're here. We're not happy with it. How do we go to the next level? One side is saying, you know, let's do more. Let's keep expanding the the universal healthcare bucket, Medicare, Medicaid, Tricare. Mm-hmm. The other is saying, let's expand the you know private bucket. Neither has a great path to do that. I see. Very interesting. Yes. I had my first baby in Belgium and I remember, you know, they keep you there for several days. And like in the United States, I think I might've stayed three or five days, something like that. So when I stopped by reception to pay my bill, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I think it was maybe $150, something like that. And I remember like carrying my baby, you know, his little car carrier and thinking, wow, pretty good deal. And then, of course, you know, the costs in the United States are just incredible. I saw a show where the hosts were stopping people on the street in the UK and asking them like what they thought it would cost to have a baby in the United States or what it would cost to have, you know, various standard procedures. And the English people, of course, know that the costs in the United States are just unbelievable, right? Just unfathomable. But they were trying to guess, right? So they're trying to guess high because they know that it's really high. And even as it was, you know, they're still saying costs that are half of what they really are in the U.S., yeah, my wife and I are talking about this right now. Isn't it like ten thousand dollars minimum to have a baby in the U.S.? Yes, it's just it's just crazy. Yeah, so yeah, I'd go for one hundred fifty bucks. I'm <laughs> having a I'm having a conversation with Sable, my wife, tonight, and we're going to be talking about moving to Belgium. Yeah, right. I don't know how it is now because because that boy is now over twenty. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just it, you don't understand how strange your own system is until you start seeing some other systems and. That was very eye-opening. Yeah, and I, I one of the things I like talking, I'm glad we brought the politics because the politics are all cloudy. But once you understand where we've come from and why most recent things have happen, happened, um, you can get you can't predict exactly what's going to happen next in the short term. But over the next twenty years, you can get to pretty some pretty good assumptions around how U.S. healthcare and insurance will evolve. And that's where I get really excited about some of the businesses I'm working on now is being able to say in 20 years, there's a couple of things I can pretty have, I have pretty high confidence that will happen. What is it going to look like in, in detail? I can't say pre- exactly, but it's pretty, you could have predicted the Affordable Care Act in, in, the, in the mid 2000s based on where we were with HSAs. And there's, there's a similar prediction. And, and my, my prediction is in the next, let's call it 10 years, 20 years, you're going to see an increasing shift from the employer market to more Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE coverage, and more individual coverage. That's happening. It's going to continue to happen. At some point, the system that supports that Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, and the individual market is going to need to be revamped based on the needs of the new new, um, market size. 
how that looks when it happens. Is it going to be private? Is it going to be a Medicare for all? Is it going to be um, something I can't even think of right now? Something new that's different than Medicare? I don't know, but I don't. I do know that it won't be employer based. That's going away. So you co-authored this book, "The End of Employer Provided Healthcare Insurance" or health insurance. Sorry, um, I haven't read that book though. I was very interested to see that you had written such a thing. And do you feel as though things have changed since you wrote that, or do you see that? as you say, it'll continue along this path. Is there anything that you, if you were to write that book now that you would uh, write differently? Oh yeah. I mean that book, um, we, 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 like if, you, if I, Paul, I wrote it with my mentor, Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we, we definitely rushed the book. This was in, uh, late 2013, 2014, when, um, there was some significant gray areas around what we were doing with the new affordable care act. And we had to be aggressive about responding to them to save our brand and then also uh, influence the regulators in terms of knowledge because they had no idea what the actual market experience was or, or even the rules were. Yeah, that happens. Yeah. And so, you know, most of the reason we wrote that book was um, was to help uh, basically educate the market and specifically the regulators on the history and the, the details of how, what we were doing, what we were doing and why it's legal and why it will continue to expand. Um, in terms of predictions, we, you know, we, we correctly predicted um, that there would be a shift um, that's happening. Uh, we cr- correctly predicted that this, the, co- the concepts that we were um, using for Zane Benefits and Zane Benefits is now called People Keep. So if you're a, you know, a person at a small business that's interested in what they do, go to, it's peoplekeep.com now, not Zane Benefits, we rebranded it. Um, but the, 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 the book um, correctly predicted that the regulatory uncertainty that we had at the time would be fixed. And Obama, before he left, signed a bill into law called the Cures Act that made exactly what we were doing 100% legal in oh, statute. Interesting. Then Trump came in, this is bipartisan, Trump came in the next term and, and, and pushed the uh, Treasury and HHS to uh, rework the rules that they had around what we were doing in a positive way. Oh. And so we've, we're, we've pr- predicted that there's this shift from, employ- we correctly predicted a uh, shift from employer-provided health insurance mm-hmm. to employer-funded health insurance, which right. is yeah. you know, giving people allowance. And um, I think what we've got, what, if I could write it again, there are two things I would change. One, I would... Uh, we were very emotional in the book and it comes across in the writing. Um, and like, like there's one chapter that's like all the, re- it's like 15 reasons why group health insurance is evil or bad. <laughs> and, and you know that, I don't think that, I think the rhetoric in the book, having learned what I learned, I think we could have written it in a different way that um, maybe put less defensiveness on the, you know, the primary way of pe- people got health insurance um, and, you know, toned it down a little bit, but it was fun writing it and it was very good. <laughs> Is extremely therapeutic. Um, so, uh, but then the other thing is, I think um, when I was younger, this was six years ago. I'm I'm older now, but I'm still really young. Uh, but they, I I had I thought things happened faster. So yeah, right. I, yeah, like I I uh, I think I've been. I always thought things would happen faster than they would. I thought that the clarity we are getting now around what we were doing in terms of employer funded health insurance and HRAs, health reimbursement arrangements, is the term. Mm-hmm. I thought that would happen six years ago. 
Right. So, but it's just now happening in t- 2019 and 2020. So I, uh, I think like what I would change is I think the predictions are pr- are probably pretty accurate. Uh, still, I think the timeline in which they happen, I pr- we predicted a lot of things would happen by 2025. I think that's more like 2030, 2035, 2040. Hmm. So instead of thinking in maybe five years or de- a decade, it's it's thinking in multiples of decades in terms of change. I was thinking about that when you were talking about the Menard situation, because we, the biotech CFOs in San Diego always joke that we move as a pack. And so we all have the same accountants and we all use the same law firm. And, you know, sometimes I really scold myself for doing that and not being more adventurous, but there is safety in moving as a pack. And so I can imagine that I I can imagine you coming in and making a presentation and and me thinking this sounds great, but is anybody else doing this? So, (laughs) you know, it just takes time for, for somebody to put their toe into the water and say, Oh, it's okay. We're, we're going to be okay if we do this. Yeah. So I, do I believe in the, would would I change any of the points we were making? No, but timeline. Yes. And then I would, uh, you know, I, I think, um, I, I, I think I had a, more confidence at the time in the details of the solution. And now I'm, I would say less, less focused on the details of the solution, more focused on what isn't going to be true. It's much easier to predict what's going to go away than what's going to come. Hmm. So like, I, I, I know employer provided health insurance is going to go away as it exists today as the primary coverage. You can, someone call me in 20 years and if it hasn't happened, you know, you can, you got me, but, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, you're I, putting, I, you're putting a line in the sand here. It's yeah. Gonna go away. It's going to go away as the primary coverage. I, you know, it's just a matter of time. Um, I, I will employers be involved in coverage past that one well, Canada. They are in Canada. They provide supplemental coverage mm-hmm. uh, to a primary, you know, universal healthcare plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, will the, the role of the employer exist? I have a hard time seeing that going away in the next 20 years. So I see, you know, I, I just don't, I think it's going to change massively from the primary source to more of a supplemental source. And I, I, uh, I just don't, I don't know the detail. I, I don't, I, I, I'm much less confident now in predicting the details of how that's going to happen. I just know that change is going to happen and where change is, there is opportunity to, to be an innovator. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It, I can imagine there are always going to be niches. We're always going to want to provide perks for certain very valuable employees. And so picking up their health insurance premiums seems pretty likely or, or somehow, you know, participating. I can certainly see that. In general, do you have, do you feel positive about what's facing us? Do you think that things will get better or what's your sense? Man, I, I so I just started a new company called Leg Up Health. Um, I've got a bit of a time period uh, with, I can't really go into my old business for a period of time. Um, Oh, because of when you left. Mm -hmm. When I left, yeah. So I've got some time on that. But I can, I learned a lot about what the problems are in the market. And Mm -hmm. I, so I I gave my, I I told myself I I would wait a year and a half or no, yeah, year, one year um, since leaving my last company because it's all I've ever done, right? Mm -hmm. And I I went to other, I looked at other industries, like education, I looked at energy. And during that year, I, it was leaving all my domain expertise behind. Yeah. And I, I found it so difficult to identify problems that were worth solving. 
in those other places. In those other places. So when my one year hit, I spent, it was October or something like 29th, my one year hits and I go within two, within two weeks, I had 15 ideas on, on where, where there were problems worth solving. And the, the problem that, that made it to the top of the list that I just launched the company officially um, in February this, this month is I call it, it's called leg up health. And the problem focuses on one of the big things that we experienced at people keep and at Zane benefits and that uh, the new HRA providers that are entering the market now following people keeps lead um, around the new clarity that was provided. What they're going to face is when you go into an employer and you give an employee this money to go buy their own health insurance, mm-hmm. they, their face goes white. Cause they don't understand. They get scared. They yeah. get anxious. They don't have the confidence yet to go buy their own health insurance. So um, right now, when when an employer is making that switch, we we ran into this all the time. We we would you know employ the employer would go, man, like my employees freaked out. Like, can you please help them buy health insurance? And we'd say, no, we're a software company. Mm-hmm. We had to do that because at the time we couldn't afford to enter the health insurance market and be subject to regulation by the departments of insurance. We wanted to stay federally regulated because insurance is regulated at the state level. Oh, I see. Interesting. And, and so we, you know, we basically had to say, we can't be the taxi cab company. We're not a taxi cab company. We're a software company. Right. And so we tried referring it out. Um, we tried educating employees, but when we referred it, when we referred it out to like a local broker or a, a, a national broker, the insurance agent, if you will, we found that when, we refer them out, the insurance agents, and this is, it's, it's, it's hard to say this without making insurance agents look bad, but this isn't the, this is the majority of insurance agents. There are a minority of insurance agents who are really, really good, but the, you know, on average, the employee experience, our customers experience when we refer that employee to a, an agent is that they would get sold things they didn't need. Oh yeah. And, and they would, um, they would also have a bad experience and that would reflect poorly on our brand. So we ended up making the decision to say, we, here's some education materials. It's your part of the solution is you taking ownership, which isn't ideal for the employer. So leg up health where it's coming in is it's going to solve that problem. I'm going to build, I'm building an insurance agency that's powered by software and backed by like Amazon like customer support shop, you know, like what was the Zappos, the, the shoe company, it's going to mm-hmm. have customer service like that, that is all around, you know, reducing the anxiety, these new work, these workers are facing when they're buying their own health coverage. And to get back to your original question, which was my encouraged. Yes. The conversations I'm, I've already added 20 beta users to the platform. Mm-hmm. The conversations I'm having with these 20 beta users are night and day compared with the conversations I was having with our early users at Zane Benefits. And what year was that? 2008, 2009, 2010. Okay. So 10 years on, now you see this very uh, big change in people's understanding. Literacy, um, frustration with the problem, uh, understanding of the problem, mm-hmm. um, and with, like desire to talk about it. Right. Like I think we're getting to a point as consumers, at least the this is what I'm seeing so far is I've, I've been, I've been managing my own health insurance and deductible long enough now where I'm able to understand that this is not okay. And I'm starting to be able to talk about doing something about it. And that encourages me because I ultimately believe that the more educated we become as consumers of healthcare, 
the the better we're going to be able to vote, the better we're going to be able to consume. And that's mm-hmm. ultimately going to lead to accelerated change around the cost curve and the future of our how we deliver healthcare in, in the US. So I after starting this business and just being in it a few months, a few weeks and talking to beta users, I'm I'm very encouraged about where we're heading in terms of let's just call it consumer ownership, which you know, back to the original, it's getting that employer out of the middle of the consumer relationship with a consumer product. Oh, no, that sounds really exciting. I know I have to let you go. Um, but before we do so, I wonder if you want to tell the listeners where they could get in touch with you or find out more or anything you'd like to share with them. Yeah, thank you. Um, so if ricklindquist.com, uh, R-I-C-K-L-I-N-D-Q-U-I-S-T is my personal website. I send out a weekly newsletter hmm. uh, on articles that I've written for the week, notes. It's primarily around... Um, the topic I'm really interested in right now is emotions and leadership. Um, but I cover all kinds of topics. So you can find me there and connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter from there. If you're interested in any of my businesses, um, the one that uh, probably is most relevant to this conversation is Leg Up Health. And you can check it out at legupheath.com very early on. Um, so I, and I respond to all emails and uh, thoughtful requests on LinkedIn and Twitter. So if you ever want to just chat or ask a question or have a conversation online, don't hesitate to, to ping me. Oh, nice. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show, Rick. It was so interesting and educational. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was really nice getting to know you. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. In keeping with the new year, we'll be changing our format somewhat as the show has evolved. We'll continue to address work-related problems, but in our second year, we'll be going beyond just an advice show to talk about work trends, labor laws, economics, interesting companies, as well as pranks, bad bosses, and more screw-ups at work. If you have a question about a work-related issue or a comment about the show, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website discreetguide.com. That's D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T. And at that website, you can also sign up for The Pergola, a digital publication that comes out every other month, and get information about training programs, books, consulting sessions, articles, jokes, and resources, all for us to work better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces. And thanks for listening. New shows will be available every Tuesday and sometimes Friday. Tune in so you can hear more about trouble at work.